Welcome to the Smart Pacific Podcast from the PTC. Introducing more insights from ICT thought leaders in the Pacific and beyond is your host, Steve McClelland. Welcome to Smart Pacific. This episode, we're in Singapore for the Submarine Networks World Event. We're focusing on the subsea part of subsea technology. Submarine cables must navigate a variety of environments under the water. It's a tricky act, and it's getting trickier. The oceans are now where other people want to be as well, and this may end up causing problems. We caught up with Graham Evans of the International Cable Protection Committee to explain the heady mix of geopolitics, environmental concerns, and industrialization on the sea floor. right now is trying to shape regulations for deep sea mining in the area, and the area is defined as the ocean floor below the water column outside of areas of national jurisdiction. Currently, deep sea mining poses threat to subsea cable infrastructure if there is uncoordinated mining activity, that is both exploration and exploitation, and mining regulations that are currently being reviewed by the ISA, the International Seabed Authority, at the moment do not provide adequate protections within those regulations. The ICPC at the moment is trying to at least shape how those regulations should be finalised by very simple measures that at least keep the mining contractors paying due diligence to this activity. So that is one outreach activity that the ICPC is involved in. The other outreach activity is the BBNJ debate, BBNJ biodiversity beyond national jurisdiction. What we are trying to achieve with our engagement in the UN intergovernmental conference process is to at least, if we can't get exemption for submarine cables, which I think is probably unlikely given the, the level of activity of environmental NGOs, what we're trying to do through peer-reviewed research demonstrate that submarine cables fall below environmental thresholds so in effect they are exempt but they're not exempt by word they're exempt by the fact that they fall below environmental threshold which do you think is the more serious and more pressing issue to deal with I think the the ISA is the most pressing simply because although at the moment there aren't that many cables, live cables, in-service cables that are impacted. There are new cable systems being planned. The criteria that many of the cable developers are looking at, or the system developers are looking at, is lowest latency. And lowest latency is to create the shortest possible route between two points. And the shortest possible route between two points is a great circle. And if that great circle goes through mining areas, then there has to be some compromises. There has to be there have to be some compromises on behalf of the mining contractors to take account of the requirements of the submarine cable developer or we have to route around these areas thereby effectively compromising the primary objective which is to provide the lowest latency route so i think deep sea mining of those two issues is probably the most pressing on an everyday basis cable projects should also be deeply concerned with coastal areas Here, there is usually quite rigorous oversight, well within national jurisdictions and regulation. We asked Denise Toombs, who is a partner at ERM and an expert in subsea cable permitting, how this was evolving. Is it getting more complicated as the industry continues to grow? 
combination? It depends upon where, where in the world you're going. So in some places where uh, there are multiple cable systems, some of the local authorities understand what they are, they understand what they're not, and, and therefore we have less explaining to do. So in some cases, that, that's the case. It doesn't always guarantee it because government authority, people change hands, and you might get someone who's brand new and you have to explain it all over again. So in some cases, it, it actually is becoming a little easier. It's where we go to new areas. As areas get more congested with cables, we're looking for new landing areas. And so those are, those are new, and we need to start over and start explaining to the new authorities in those locations. And so it's maybe not more complicated, but it just requires more effort. What typically tend to be the concerns that you face? As always, it varies with the location. In some areas, it will be fishing. That might be the major concern. In other areas, let's say Puerto Rico, for example, coral. There are protected corals there and reefs and so more sensitive environments. And so in those areas that's what maybe the greatest concern would be. In other areas it's because they may be ignorant of what the impacts might be or how minor they may be. They, the local authorities and stakeholders may think this is a big pipeline and, and so they're worried about dredging activity and, and so that's where we really need to educate them and make them understand this is really not that, it's not a giant thing. It really has very minor, very short-term impacts. Do you routinely have to make environmental impact analyses or similar studies? It's generally not our choice. It's the environmental impact analysis. It might be an EIA, might be something at a more screening level. That's usually determined by the local regulations, local requirements, but also the sensitivity of it. So, and that's a decision that's not always made by us. And so, but that is one mechanism to provide objective information that does help explain what the potential impacts may be. Or if there aren't, aren't any impacts, it's, it's really demonstrating why. For the coastal work, What's the outlook you see for the next 18 months, two years or so? Where I would see or more forecast more change is because we're needing to go into areas that are newer areas and they're not the same areas we've been before, I do anticipate, especially with the demand we're, we're seeing forecast, that we'll be going into areas that will be a little more uncertain and therefore we're going to have to make sure we're being smart about how we approach stakeholders wherever we go uh, so that we can really understand what the concern may be and plan to educate them as we go. How far do you get in the high seas dimension? At this time we deal with actual permitting requirements which are more coastal but they do go out in many cases out to the EEZ. That said we do encounter on more frequently now the local authorities will ask us, or the federal authorities will ask about things that are happening on the high seas or beyond the EEZ. And depending on the circumstances, we may diplomatically mention to them that this is beyond their jurisdiction. In other cases, it makes more sense to, without committing to anything or conducting more analyses, just provide some basic information to answer the questions, but not take it beyond that. So we're still seeing it. We have not been involved at a policy level. 
It's certainly an interesting and still evolving debate, isn't it? It is, very much so. And we are watching that with great interest. Obviously, that's um, that could change really the really the entire scope of what we need to do to install a system. ICPC's Graham Evans agrees. BBNJ is something that it's a threat if we don't win our case. If if all subsea cables need to go through an environmental assessment process. One needs to bear in mind that submarine cables are already subjected to an environmental impact assessment within the coastal state within which the cable lands. So it lands in at least two places. Each of those two places have their own environmental regulation, which may not be compatible with each other. But if then you have a third regime in the, what we now think of as the high seas, that is going to make, that's going to make the planning of subsea cables not only more complex, but the whole lead time from concept to implementation much longer. The subsea cable community often finds itself at odds with fishing interests. But there's at least one story from the Oregon coast that shows the two could get along together if they worked in partnership we caught up with Scott McMullen of the Oregon Fishermen's Cable Committee to find out more and pointed out that the majority of cable breaks that we see are caused by fishing activity. Yes, I think that's true. Uh, historically, before our organization was formed, there were two cable breaks, at least two that I'm aware of, on fiber optic cables in Oregon. And at the time, we only had one cable in the water. But we have worked to try to change that situation by working between the fishing industry and the cable industry in a very positive, respectful manner. We try to make sure that the cable owners and the fishermen are working together on projects so that we can minimize the interference to each other's livelihoods. And we do that in a number of, a number of ways, but the main thing is communication. We spend a lot of time getting to know each other, uh, talking, working out issues. We try to be as minimally invasive to the other's uh, industry as possible. And we've found ways to make that work. We allow our fishermen to fish over submarine cables if they're buried and provided that they follow a very strict set of guidelines. We call them protocols for fishing around cables. But when we have a very cable-aware fleet, which in Oregon we do, and they're following those protocols, we found that cooperation does work. We have over 1,150 kilometers of active submarine cables in active fishing grounds, and now we've reached our 20-year anniversary of the formation of our group. And while I said that we had several breaks before we were formed, in the 20 years that we've been around, we haven't had a single break of a submarine cable. So I think that shows that the cooperative approach can work. But you need to be highly proactive in terms of communication and education here, don't you? Well, in Oregon, uh, we find that cable owners, one of their first stops when planning a cable is to come and meet with us. The state of Oregon the government has a policy that we favor renewable uh, industries such as fishing, and they have encouraged cable owners to meet ahead of time, before you even start your uh, permitting process, to meet with the fishing industry. So we meet, we collaborate, uh, we do that by uh, loading their cable route plans onto a few couple fishing boats that are familiar with that particular part of the coast. And we ask for help so that we can, the goal uh, between us mutually is get the best burial possible. We like nothing better than to have 100% burial 
between the bore pipe and the end of burial. So if there is a, an exposure, we work to protect that with the fleet. We feel we do have high degree of awareness and a high degree of compliance by the fishing fleet with the data that we provide them on thumb drives showing the cable routes and any exposures. Are there lessons to be learned for other parts of the world from this initiative? You know, it's, it's hard for me to say what, what could be done elsewhere because I don't know those fishing fleets. I, I know there's many challenges in some areas that we don't have. We have a very homogenous fleet. All of our fishermen speak English. They're all U.S. citizens. We're, we're dealing with one country, and that makes it easier. It's a very confined set, and we have a, a relatively small fleet for the amount of fishing grounds that we have we don't have a lot of fishing activities. So it's hard for me to say, gee, just do A, B, and C and everything will be wonderful. I know there's real challenges other places. But if there is a shadow across the community, it may be coming from a more malicious direction. I asked the ICPC's Graham Evans about a fear on the minds of many people in the community. Security. Is it a pressing concern? There are other pressing matters which involve physical security of cables, which we've seen some quite emotive press statements in last year, even some emotive statements made by senior military people, such as the chief of the UK defence staff, claiming that submarines were being equipped to cut submarine cables. OK, that is a threat. It's a threat that is difficult to defend against. However, they're more resilient than people would imagine. Obviously, multiple cuts on multiple cables can cause havoc. So this is a, a new and emerging threat, and especially with some of the geopolitical tensions that prevail in, say, the Baltic and the North Sea, but also in the South China Sea. Although China needs submarine cables just like their neighbours need submarine cable. Everybody else needs the, the subsea cable infrastructure to conduct their communications requirements, whether it be financial services, whether it be even the transmission of military data. It's a threat that is an emerging threat and something that we'll have to be paid attention to. I'd like to go back to a question that I was asked at Curity Symposium that I was asked to attend. I was asked to present what I thought was the most difficult vulnerability to subsea cable infrastructure that I could envisage. And actually I did have to think about this quite a bit. In the end, I came up with what is in itself a hybrid threat, and that is its complacency, because you're constantly using the internet, they take it for granted, it's like switching on a light bulb, it's like turning on the water, It all the, the lights go on, the water comes out of a tap, and everybody just assumes that's going to be a continuing thing with the internet. So without that infrastructure, if that infrastructure was somehow disabled, it would cause total mayhem, and... That is a big concern. And the problem is that the world is pretty complacent and many people still ask me why am I involved in submarine cables because they think everything goes through satellite. Well, I've got news. Satellites carry maybe less, less than 2% of the world's communications traffic. They don't have the bandwidth, they don't have the reliability and they don't have the latency. So submarine cables is the internet and without that we will all struggle. Clearly, security is just about to join a long list of other factors in subsea. At least no one can accuse the world of the subsea cable of ever being boring. That's it from Smart Pacific. Show notes are available on the PTC website at ptc.org. 
check them out. Thanks for listening. PTC is the premier global nonprofit membership organization promoting ICT in the Pacific Rim. Get involved in the world's most dynamic ICT region. Join PTC today. Participate in PTC seminars and conferences. Engage in PTC research programs. Make web contributions to PTC outreach. Share our dialogue and these PTC podcasts. Help us by rating them on iTunes. For more information about what PTC can do for you, see ptc.org.